Hello, you are listening to Practicing Gospel. I'm David Rayburn. When anyone or group is given the reins of an organization of any kind, big or small, that person or group is wise to ask a series of questions about the organization. What is happening in the organization right now and why? How did the organization come to be this way? Is the organization healthy? and being true to its founding purpose? What should be done right now and next? That person or group is also wise to ask these questions continuously. For those of us still responsible for, and for those just now taking up the reins of the church, such questions are as important as they are for organizations in general. Of course, Asking about how an organization came to be where it is now includes historical questions, not just about the organization itself, but the culture surrounding the organization in which it was established and in which it operates. Throughout time, folks seeking wisdom have valued the study of history because such study helps provide understanding that in turn becomes the basis on which judgments, decisions, plans, and actions are made. In her superb book, These Truths, A History of the United States, historian Jill Lepore holds a particular understanding of history. She says that history is not merely a form of memory, but also a form of investigation, to be disputed like philosophy, its premises questioned, its evidence examined, its arguments countered. She argues that such an understanding of history as inquiry was central to the nation's founding and that to study the past is to unlock the prison of the present. In my mind, such an understanding of history as inquiry and as the key to unlocking the prison of the present is also central to a church that needs to be continuously reforming. As a Christian and Baptist theologian, I bring theological categories to any inquiry, including historical inquiry. Especially when it comes to Christian history, I bring doctrines of finitude, sin, the Holy Spirit, and the church as interpretive questions. When and where have our limits and our sins been manifest in our beliefs, practices, and actions? When and where has or hasn't the Holy Spirit been active in history in general, and particularly in the church's history? What is the calling and purpose of the church, and when and where has or hasn't it been faithful to its calling and purpose? Such questions for me should form the basis for those of us still responsible for or just now taking up the reins of the church for evaluating what is happening right now in and with the church, for our understanding of why the church is where it is now, for whether or not the church is healthy and being true to its calling and purpose, and for what should be done now and next. What the study of history does is to provide us with interpretive resources. What the historian does, being practiced and skilled 
in the use of those interpretive resources is to provide us with insight, understanding, and most importantly, wisdom. A wisdom that, if we heed it, will enable us to make better judgments, decisions, plans, and actions. For a whole lot of us, especially the legions of us who have been his students, the church and Baptist historian that we have turned to and still turn to for those insights, understanding, and especially wisdom is Dr. Bill Leonard. Bill is the founding dean and professor of divinity emeritus at Wake Forest University School of Divinity. He is the author or editor of some 25 books. Two of his latest books are Homebrewed Christianity Guide to Church History, Flaming Heretics and Heavy Drinkers, and A Sense of the Heart, A History of Christian Religious Experience in the United States. Bill is here to continue to guide us as we ask the questions about where the church is now and what should it be doing heading into the future. So welcome, Bill. Thank you for being with me this evening. Well, thank you, David. I'm honored to be chatting with you tonight. Well, so we're here to talk about the church and what's going on with it, uh, how we are in the present situation, uh, what we need to be looking forward to the future. Uh, so why don't we begin? Uh, you had mentioned in one of your Baptist News Global articles that um, the church is in crisis because it's in multiple crises. Yeah. <laughs> Let's kind of unpack that a little bit as a present way of talking about where we are. In many ways, before the pandemic, the church was already uh, in some difficult days demographically uh, and, and across the theological and denominational spectrum. Uh, declines started uh, really with the new century in, in very direct ways. Uh, if we talk about the church in America, we really have to distinguish Protestant, Catholic, uh, mainline churches that include uh, the Disciples of Christ, the United Methodist Church, the Episcopal Church, the Evangelical Lutheran Church, uh, the Presbyterian Church USA, and uh, the American Baptist Churches USA. That, that group also gets on that list for the most part. Uh, and then Evangelicals, uh, that would be um, the... Um, Southern Baptist Convention as the largest denomination in the country and uh, a variety of Pentecostal groups and uh, reformed groups and groups that uh, uh, in many ways move between uh, the sort of highly doctrinal, uh, more Calvinist groups uh, to Pentecostal holiness, charismatic groups. Uh, those, those really three traditions uh, and every one of them, by uh, certainly by 2020 and most by 2010 at least, had shown uh, significant declines, uh, aging congregations and difficulties in attracting, uh, at least for many of them, uh, younger 
persons to their fellowships. And these declines had been a part of the uh, mainline denominations for a number of years, but uh, the evangelicals had been growing to a certain extent in the latter days of the 20th century. And um, uh, Roman Catholics were represent the largest single religious group in the country, some 64, 67 million, and they had been growing for some time. Although some recent studies have shown that their growth was primarily related to uh, Latino, Latina, Latin X uh, individuals and congregations, uh, and that declines among what scholars call Anglo-Catholics had been present for some time. So um, certainly these these declines have been significant demographically and uh, highly affected by a, a new group altogether that are, are sometimes called the nuns, N-O-N-E-S, or nons, uh, those persons in the U.S. who claim no religious affiliation formally at all. Uh, and that group had stayed at around seven or eight percent in most survey, sociological surveys that were done for years. But again, by the early 2000s, they showed a steady increase, uh, almost at least one percent a year. So that now most studies suggest that Roman Catholics, evangelicals, and nons, the unaffiliated, uh, really all three uh, average around 23, 22% of the population. And so they're all equal then? By, by they're all about, about the same wow. and uh, declining. Each, each of them would represent about that 22, 23%. Uh, evangelicals peaked probably in the late 90s at around 29% of the population. And um, they've been declining really since then. Um, and th this is due to a number of re reasons, uh, as, as we said, aging uh, congregations and uh, the decline of many of the uh, denominational systems that tended to nurture young people. Uh, in in the faith and in church attendance and the networks of denominationally related uh, churches, agencies, and uh, uh, schools, the 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 uh, denominational college and university networks, or the religion-based college and university uh, networks, and. All of those have experienced these numerical declines as well. Southern Baptists are a kind of case study in that, I'll say rather quickly, meaning that for a long time they they were growing or at least looked as if they were growing. Uh, but they've been really since 2010, and, and I think significantly before that, uh, they've shown... Uh, annual decreases in membership and in baptisms. And uh, baptisms were the, the primary way in which the denomination reflected growth annually uh, as a way of adding new converts and new um, 
individuals to their membership. So that's that's really been a part of the uh, demographic realities of churches. That's only been exacerbated by the uh, coronavirus and the fact that so many churches have had to go uh, online, virtual, and either have minimal uh, gathered attendance at worship and at other church services, or not at all. And uh, that's had uh, impact and is continuing to have impact on funding for those congregations and on upkeep and um, the ability to create a sense of community in individuals. Will you talk about a uh, changing sociology of Sunday? Yes. One, I think one of the major factors in this decline or contributing to it is what I have called the changing sociology of Sunday. And that, again, has been an evolving practice of so much of American society or a long-time privileged church attendance, the old so-called blue laws that uh, required shops and shopping malls and businesses to either stay closed on Sunday or uh, to open after noon uh, in order to give people the opportunity to attend church. And and Sunday was uh, primarily, or, or for many people, uh, centrally a religion-based day uh, with Sunday school and uh, church attendance. And then in the old days among certain evangelical groups, uh, even uh, Sunday night attendance as well. And the Sunday night services sort of passed off the scene for most congregations uh, by the late 20th century. And um, uh, now we find that increasingly with Sunday, the day itself is having to bear all kinds of uh, other options for people, even for church people, meaning that um, uh, people ask me, uh, what do you mean by the changing sociology of Sunday? And I will say, I'll give you a one-word definition, soccer. And they immediately know what I'm talking about because they have children or grandchildren or kids in their churches some of whom uh, can't attend the 11 o'clock sacred hour of worship because they've got to get ready for afternoon Sunday soccer or parents and families that sit in the back of the church so they can slip out early to, to make that. That's one small illustration of uh, a much larger issue. Uh, there, there have been some surveys that suggested that even these days, some of the most active members of churches really may only be able to attend 40% of the time on Sunday. And um, that's been uh, a growing trend. But uh, for families, even church families, uh, the need to see about aging parents, to visit grandchildren, uh, to visit kids in college, uh, to see to family issues. Many people have work responsibilities or work preparation on Sundays. Uh, and and here in North Carolina, so many people have either second have second homes in the mountains or on the beach, and they have to go and spend time there as well. And um, so 
that can become uh, a um, a really serious issue and has become a really serious issue in many ways. Well, you also talk about um, globalism uh, and the impact that has upon the crisis of the church uh, and pluralism. How would you distinguish those? Yes. Um, those? One, particularly for Protestant denominations, but also for Roman Catholics, um, Globalism was closely related to the church's mission, and uh, Protestant congregations in the West, not simply in the U.S., uh, since the late 1700s and certainly into the uh, 20th century, sent out missionaries in order to uh, teach and preach and Christianize and provide services uh, internationally for uh, in in countries around the world, and in many ways, those efforts uh, helped spread Christianity globally to this day. In fact, in many ways, some of the fastest growing regions of the world uh, in terms of uh, Christianity are outside Europe and North America. And that, that uh, often brought together uh, individuals, particularly through denominations from around the world in terms of gather, uh, annual or semi-annual or occasional uh, international gatherings. Uh, Western missionaries learned languages and cultures and went out to, to speak and work and uh, live in many of those places. Uh, increasingly, with uh, the declining budgets of denominations, many of those global missionary activities uh, have have declined. Southern Baptist Convention, which may still be the largest Protestant missionary force in the country, I'm not sure if it still is, but they had to bring home uh, several hundred missionaries uh, a few years ago as a part of the declines financially that they were experiencing. So even their missionary task force has been uh, in decline. Now we find that many uh, of, of the countries that were missionized are now themselves sending out missionaries to the West. And uh, I've been with people who were missionaries from uh, Asia and South America uh, and Africa who had come here to uh, sometimes start churches among particular ethnic groups, but then expanded their influence in the larger culture. And uh, so those roots are still there, but they're not having the same kind of uh, impact, I think, uh, that they did at, at one time. Pluralism in America really was there, at least for some uh, colonists, from the beginning. My Baptist forebearers, such as uh, Roger Williams and, and John Clark in uh, Rhode Island, uh, the people who founded the first two Baptist churches uh, in the colonies, uh, were in their own way uh, some of the first advocates of religious pluralism. That is, they uh, fought against uh, 
religious establishments. In New England, uh, the Puritans, and in Virginia, uh, the Anglicans in the, in the uh, 1600s, as early as the 1600s. First Baptist Church in America was founded in Providence uh, by Roger Williams in uh, around 1638 or so, and in Newport, Rhode Island uh, by John Clark in 1639, 1640. And these two individuals like Baptists in England and elsewhere in the colonies said, God alone is judge of conscience. And therefore neither the state nor an established privileged church can judge the conscience of the heretic, the people that believe the wrong things, or the atheist, the people who don't believe anything at all. Uh, and God will judge those conscience, the, the, those, those individuals, for the stand they do or do not make on the basis of their own conscience. And um, that was the beginning of pluralism. Of pluralism. Uh, Williams and uh, Clark, among others, opened the door to uh, recognizing that Muslims and Jews and Buddhists and uh, non-Christian uh, religious practitioners also should have freedom to practice their views without punitive action from the state or the community. And that really is the open door to what we call today religious pluralism. The, the idea that America is a Christian nation, quote unquote, was something both of those individuals and many of the early Baptists uh, challenged. Uh, Roger Williams says, uh, there are no Christian nations, only Christian people bound to Christ, not by citizenship, but by faith. And while Protestantism uh, was the, the majority religious community of colonial America, uh, there was always an openness among certain Protestants, what we call the free church tradition, uh, particularly Quakers and Baptists uh, in, in the colonial period, uh, to recognizing the ability of other persons outside uh, one particular church or the church in general. Uh, to, those persons should have the right to practice their faith. At the same time, the country in many ways privileged Protestantism. One of the things I've said across the years is that uh, with the uh, First Amendment and religious freedom uh, in, in the Constitution, uh, Americans still continued to give, to grant religious uh, freedom grudgingly. It was on the books, but but majority Americans, particularly majority American Protestants, uh, would often withhold it or even uh, cause trouble for those religions that were strange, that were strange uh, or uh, perceived to be unorthodox or outside the norm. Uh, and that was true when the Catholics came. There was a great deal of anti-Catholicism when the Catholics um, first began to come, and anti-Catholicism became significant when large numbers of Catholics um, 
started coming to this country in the early 18 and then later uh, 1800s. Well, how do you see globalism and pluralism uh, contributing to the crisis that we're in now? Um, one of the things that's happening in terms of pluralism is that it really is here. There was a time when even uh, religious liberty oriented groups uh, talked a good game on religious pluralism, but there weren't many of those practitioners here, uh, statistically speaking. Now that's increasingly normative. And uh, in some ways, certain Christian groups uh, are struggling with the fact that they are no longer privileged by the culture. That, um, and, and we see that in court cases related to whether you can uh, say prayers at uh, political gatherings, uh, meaning city councils or uh, schools or other public uh, event, other public events, whether you can have deity-specific prayers uh, in these kind of governmental gatherings. Uh, and um, Or do you open the door to prayers from a whole series of individuals representing Christian and non-Christian religious communities? Or do you have a silent prayer in which those who want to pray are able to do so in their own personal way, uh, and those who don't want to pray can sit in silence? Uh, those those are the debates that have been intensified uh, as pluralism became increasingly normative and non-Christian uh, groups or non, in many ways, non-Protestant groups uh, or the wrong kind of Protestant groups um, were um, seen to be threatening. And you can run a list from the colonial period to the present uh, of, of the way in which that's that grudging kind of um, uh, granting of religious liberty in the public square in the on the popular mode uh, has been practiced whether that was uh, the burning of synagogues or the burning of uh, certain kinds of churches uh, uh, whether you know in the 1950s the supreme court allowed public schools to expel jehovah's witnesses students who refused to say the pledge to the flag um, and uh, Mormonism was uh, horribly persecuted. Joseph Smith, the founder of uh, Mormonism, uh, the Church of Jesus Christ of the Latter-day Saints, was shot to death in uh, Illinois in um, uh, the 1840s. And so this kind of persecution has, has continued and has often been visited uh, these days in terms of church shootings and the like, uh, or in the um, uh, destruction of church property or vandalism. And I think that's had an impact of, of um, contributing in some ways to uh, the, the decline of uh, religion, not as, as these places are necessarily dangerous, though some of them have been, but uh, with individuals who um, were concerned that the wrong kind of religions were uh, being privileged from their perspective. And I I've often said 
in America, religious freedom means that your church group can be as welcoming or as obnoxious as it chooses to be. <laughs> and they're free to do that. Uh, and and one of the things that's happened and has in some ways contributed to this decline is that for a growing number of uh, individuals outside the church, what sounds like conviction in the congregation can sound like bigotry to people outside the congregation. Uh, some of us remember, and, and some of my Jewish friends who are, are of an age uh, have not forgotten this, that in 1980 in Dallas at the Religious Roundtable, the Southern Baptist evangelist Bailey Smith uh, spoke at this uh, multi-evangelical uh, gathering and said uh, those infamous words that God Almighty does not hear the prayer of a Jew. Mm. That, that happened to be broadcast on, uh, I don't know if it was in, in CNN, but it was broadcast on television in the early days of that kind of mass media uh, emphasis. And it created a huge, huge struggle uh, in terms of the, the bigotry that was shown by someone who had probably said that in multiple Baptist churches all over Texas and Oklahoma and gotten amens with it. But when he said it in the public square and it was broadcast on television, it sounded like bigotry. And, that, and that's often pushed people away from churches, even when churches uh, wanted to declare their, their particular religious convictions. Um, as I understand it, uh, one of the reasons why uh, there is this rise of the nuns that you've talked about uh, and uh, so many people beginning to leave faith and part of the decline is that the complicity of the church uh, in all of its uh, uh, cooperation with genocide and with slavery, uh, with the atrocities of Jim Crow lynchings and, and uh, racism, uh, and now uh, the sexual abuse of, of ministry, uh, that that's all coming home to roost, uh, and that a lot of people are just saying no to that. Uh, unpack that a little bit for us. Yes, uh, and you're exactly right, David. Um, the church in America has always tried to hold itself up as the moral compass the national conscience of the country, and to speak to issues, particularly, as we've said, these conversionist uh, issues uh, that, that uh, drew people to Christianity and that laid out rigorous moral practices, uh, the, the questions of uh, sex and marital fidelity and uh, honesty and telling the truth and uh, living uh, a moral life, the church was to be the teacher for the society in many ways. But often what was neglected, even inside churches themselves, was the way in which congregations, individuals, and entire denominations participated in practices that were themselves uh, dehumanizing, uh, immoral uh, and unchristian. No, there, nowhere is that more evident. Nowhere is that more evident 
than in the practice of chattel slavery in this country for um, beginning in the year 1619, when the first slave, slaves were brought to Virginia. Uh, and uh, that whole slave culture, which was so much a part of the colonial period and the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution, using these high sounding words uh, all the time, uh, keeping one whole segment of American society, uh, a segment of color uh, in slavery, was uh, a practice that was accepted by so many Christian individuals, including uh, many persons who founded churches, denominations, and religion-related schools. Uh, and only recently, uh, in, in the 21st century, although that was acknowledged by schools and churches at some point, it was not with the intensity that we're experiencing it now, where uh, people of color are calling on uh, white Christianity uh, to take seriously uh, and even to, to provide reparations for uh, the way in which the white Protestant church, uh, the white Catholic church in this country uh, facilitated not simply chattel slavery, but uh, Jim Crow laws and white supremacy and the whole lost cause mythology uh, in the South uh, following the Civil War. So um, Georgetown College and the University of Virginia were among schools in the last few years that founded a consortium of schools that were coming to terms with their slave-related origins. Often, many of them uh, founded uh, by religious communities. Wake Forest University, where I uh, taught for 23 years, um, and Furman University down the road uh, in South Carolina, uh, are among those Baptist-related schools that were founded by slave owners, that many of their faculties, members and the founding faculties were themselves slave owners, and, and they defended, many of them, defended slavery uh, on the basis of scripture. Richard Furman in 1822, pastor of First Baptist Church, uh, Charleston, South Carolina, uh, writes a treatise to the governor of the state in which he said, uh, had the holding of slaves been a moral evil, we cannot suppose that the holy apostles who feared not the faces of men would have tolerated it for a moment in the Christian church. Mm, yeah. And that really becomes one of the earliest, quote unquote, biblical defenses of slavery that would be developed uh, primarily in the South uh, during the 19th century. And that, and many of those arguments lingered uh, through uh, into the present day, with uh, directly and indirectly. So the, the the complicity of churches and church bodies and church individuals in uh, those highly racist uh, practices uh, are being called into question as well, and uh, even more recently. Uh, the uh, sexual abuse practices 
by Roman Catholic clergy, uh, many of which were many of whom were protected uh, by church hierarchy, has become the major scandal for Roman Catholic churches in the late 20th and into the 21st century. Uh, Catholics in America, Catholic dioceses in America have paid out something like three or four billion dollars to settle cases of uh, and, and uh, sexual abuse cases brought by men and women against clergy and the and the and the clergy that protected them. Uh, studies have also been done of certain Protestant groups where clergy were uh, sexually abusive and where the congregations either passed them on to other churches uh, without uh, identifying their practices uh, or uh, covered up those practices as well, similarly. One of the things that I was also wondering about as far as the way the crisis in the church, uh, what's uh, contributing to that, uh, in your book, A Sense of the Heart, uh, you talk about that William McLaughlin claims that um, awakenings in the church uh, happen not because of depressions, wars, or epidemics, uh, but crucial disjunctions in our self-understanding. Uh, and that seems to be what's happening with us and what's contributing to our crisis today is we seem to have a, a crucial disjunction in our self-understanding. And it may not be an awakening, uh, but it does seem to be a disjunction. Yes, and, and there's an evolution to that whole issue from McLaughlin's uh, writing in the uh, mid-20th century to where things are now. Uh, a, a little quick uh, historical survey, I think, may be helpful. Uh, the issue of awakenings really is founded on the idea that Individuals are uh, having this uh, crisis of the self and that a direct encounter of the soul with God, as the Quaker Rufus Jones wrote in the early 20th century, was an important way of uh, redeeming the individual in terms of salvation, but also uh, changing the heart. And underneath that was this uh, idea that all persons are born into sin. And the um, conversion was a way of entering into Christ and being redeemed. And the, the theological word that was used was regenerated, made new, uh, to use biblical language, born again, being a new creation. And that was the thing that, that was, that was the, the Christian response, the conversionist response to this disjunction in every human life. This idea of conversion as a mandate for everyone who would claim membership in the church was rather late in Christian history in terms of becoming a normative experience. Uh, individuals throughout Christian history have conversions. St. Paul, uh, St. Augustine, uh, Teresa of Avila, uh, St. John of the Cross, uh, St. Francis of Assisi. These are very famous, well-known people who, who testified themselves to a conversion experience. But the normative uh, method of 
entering into faith uh, was the sacramental uh, emphasis of salvation. One received baptism that washed away the curse of original sin uh, at birth and then was nurtured through the body and blood of Christ at communion and the, the, the various sacraments of the church. Uh, but it is the Puritans who in uh, 17th, 18th century England uh, began to require conversion of everyone as a way of uh, solving the sin problem. That would have been the word they would have used or the, the, the disjuncture of the self and preaching for conversion became a major part of large numbers of Protestant uh, communions. And uh, this emphasis, and, and so these awakenings would sweep areas. Uh, the, the first great awakening of the colonial period, the 1700s, with Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield and uh, the Tennant family in Pennsylvania. Uh, and then the second great awakening on the American frontier that uh, really began the, uh, the strong emphasis of Methodists and Baptists in American life. In 1800, when that uh, awakening begins, the frontier awakening, Baptists and Methodists are two of the smallest denominations in the country. And as they enter into the revival spirit and large numbers of persons are converted, many of those persons joined Methodist and Baptist churches. And, and so through much of the 19th and uh, 20th centuries, Baptists and Methodists were the two largest uh, denominations in the country. And the awakenings were a way, were, were the, the, the revivals that precipitated and contributed to these religious awakenings uh, were the method for calling persons to faith. They, they told people how to enter in and how to be uh, cured. <laughs> uh, I love this word, salvifically. That is how to be made whole. And um, th that conversionistic emphasis uh, became increasingly normative. But something happened by the late 19th century and throughout the 20th century uh, and that, that contributed ultimately to this decline. And that was that conversion changed for many churches from um, a life transforming event into a salvation transaction. Uh, you want to be saved, uh, pray a prayer, uh, mean it with all your heart, invite Jesus into your heart, and then no must, no fuss, uh, you're a Christian. And so the struggle of both for conversion and for Christian living uh, got solved, uh, as H. Richard Niebuhr said, uh, uh, twice a year when the revival preacher came to town. Yeah. <laughs> and, and so the heart of conversion was in many ways displaced with the stamp of approval for a transaction. And that has been a part of the difficulties that evangelicals have had as revivals became less normative by the late 20th century. Evangelicals, many of them, found it in, increasingly 
difficult to state uh, their understanding of the nature of faith and the gospel in ways that would draw persons to faith. That's not to say that it didn't continue. It just didn't continue in the same uh, with the same numbers that it had before. And so the conversion crisis in American Protestantism was one of the early stages to um, this decline that has developed. Let me give you one sort of quick illustration. Southern Baptists were masters at shaping conversions and, and calling for awakenings in congregations. Uh, but um, over a period of time, uh, though their, their ability to draw persons to faith through revivals declined considerably. And so there was a period in the, in the, from the 1960s, really through uh, up, up to the end of the 20th century, when uh, Southern Baptists found that, that uh, many Southern Baptists found that their evangelistic emphasis wasn't drawing new people. And so they started rebaptizing the faithful. And they, you had a whole series of evangelists who went around and preached uh, doubts. Maybe you didn't pray the prayer the right way. Maybe you didn't say the right words. Maybe you didn't mean it. Maybe you were a kid and you didn't know what you were doing. And so you may need to pray that prayer and be baptized again. And, and sadly, uh, a number of Southern Baptist evangelists and churches kept their baptismal statistics up, not by evangelizing new converts, but by rebaptizing uh, old ones. Yeah, I know that experience very well. And, and that, that inability to make the same case for this, this moral and spiritual transformation, conversion, uh, has contributed to the decline of uh, persons involving themselves in the church and in the, the salvation process. Well, in looking at what the church should do, uh, how should we respond to our crisis? Um, you use uh, four terms uh, that I'll let you kind of talk about. Uh, you talk about the importance of conscience. Uh, you talk about the importance of dissent. Uh, you talk about the importance of witness. Uh, and you talk about Bonhoeffer moments. Mm. So in your understanding about where the church should go, what we should do in responding to the present crisis that involves globalism and pluralism and decline and scandal, um, how do each of those three thing, four things uh, help us move forward? Conscience, dissent, witness, and Bonhoeffer moments. Mm. Um, I'm amazed after years of teaching Christian history at the way in which the importance of conscience uh, has always been a part of Christian instruction and practice and, and uh, witness <laughs> and dissent. Uh, Martin Luther standing uh, at the Diet of Worms uh, that classic statement, my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not recant, for to go against conscience is neither safe 
nor right. Um, and, and apparently he allegedly added, it's difficult to document, uh, God help me, here I stand, amen. Um, and, and in those kinds of moments, conscience and dissent come together. And that is often the lone individual crying out against the official church about ways in which the church has, has worn blinders or has uh, not seen it, how its own practices uh, negated their claims to Christian culture and, and Christian conversion and Christian dynamic. And the power of the individual conscience uh, is, is the foundation of what becomes uh, the dissenting element in Christian life. That is, those individuals who um, uh, see something that is wrong, not only in the church, but in the way the church is interpreting the gospel. And they cry out against that, whether that's uh, race or sexual abuse uh, or uh, uh, the, the, the way in which the church participates in the society. Uh, you you re re referenced, I think, a bit ago uh, in, in which uh, the practice of lynching in the American South from the late uh, 19th into the mid 20th century uh, was accepted as normative. And churches in the South, uh, James Cone in his book, The Cross and the Lynching Tree, documents uh, how Southern congregations would often dismiss on Sunday and men, women, boys, and girls would go to the lynching yeah, and be yeah. at that. Uh, and this was, this was in, in certain kinds of particular cultural contexts, this was completely acceptable. And, and so it took uh, people uh, standing over against those practices for the sake of consciences. And Martin Luther King and Ralph Abernathy and Rosa Parks uh, and uh, Fannie Lou Hamer uh, were African-Americans who in the uh, mid 20th century uh, raised their voices and went to prison and were beaten and, and assassinated uh, because of their dissent against uh, racism and Jim Crow laws and the separate but equal segregated society. Uh, and, and, um, so conscience and dissent are inseparable, and they are necessary. Uh, it's messy. Dissent is always messy. And uh, sometimes the dissenters cause more trouble than they, than they uh, help. But making their voices known is extremely uh, important. And um, uh, these days, I've been talking about... Uh, reconnecting with the word witness, uh, particularly with these declines and the need for the church to rethink who it is, what it is in the world. Uh, in, when I was growing up in Texas, witness uh, as a Baptist was something you did in order to call people to conversion. You went out witnessing on, on Sunday afternoons, you and yeah. a deacon. Yeah. Uh, and um, uh, you gave out the plan of salvation and you called on people to uh, trust Christ. 
That was, that was giving your testimony and being a witness for Christ. Uh, as, as that kind of emphasis uh, declines somewhat, though it's not lost at all uh, in the church uh, completely, um, the word witness sort of fell by the wayside. And, and uh, these days, as fewer people attend churches, it really behooves churches to, to go outside their buildings to give witness in the world, uh, particularly on issues, uh, I would say, of justice, reconciliation, and compassion, meaning churches no longer have the luxury of waiting on people to come to us. Uh, the, the, that's part of what I meant by the way in which the American culture uh, nurtured church attendance. And, and part of being a good American was, and, and caring for your family and receiving salvation and participating in community was to um, uh, attend church regularly. As, as that has become less normative, Churches have to uh, recover and reform their witness in the community, responding to the hurts and uh, to the people who are in pain and the people who are on the margins, whether they ever come to the church or not, but for the sake of the gospel. Uh, and I think that's really, uh, and I find that uh, the churches that are thriving I've been saying for a while, don't ask to start with, is our church growing numerically? Ask, is our church thriving spiritually and in terms of witness? Meaning, have we found ways to minister outside the church's walls that energize our people to engage with those who are in need? And the churches that are doing that, I find I've called that have developed signature ministries. That is, uh, uh, they may be one or two. They may they may only be one kind of public witness and practice out and about. But where people say, "Oh, aren't you the church that's doing X, Y, and Z in our community?" Uh, that and and those churches that have found those signature ministries, engaging their people in a witness in the world in responding to particular human needs needs seem to be the churches that are thriving spiritually and maybe growing with that, but you don't start with trying to grow. You start with trying to thrive. So what's a Bonhoeffer moment? Out of conscience, out of witness, out of dissent, there are times when the culture itself become uh, enters such a dire phase, such a state of things in which individual Christians and Christian communities are called upon uh, to act out of dissent often. Uh, and and often with Bonhoeffer uh, in danger because the whole culture has gone so far away from what is not just Christian but what is human 
and that the individual uh, has to be willing to respond in ways that uh, provide an alternative witness in a difficult time. And the Bonhoeffer moment is that, um, that moment when we have to find courage to respond to the culture that we find to be uh, dehumanizing. Uh, and uh, I'll say it like this, uh, far from uh, the gospel of Jesus. And, and, and that things are so bad in that culture, things are so difficult, things are so, um, uh, values are so mistaken that we, we may have to, if not put our lives on the line, uh, at least have to be willing to sacrifice something of ourselves in order to give that witness uh, in the larger society. Bonhoeffer, the German uh, pastor theologian, uh, saw this in the early stages of the Hitler regime uh, when, when uh, the German church was applauding Hitler as a messenger of Christ in, in 1933 when National Socialism became uh, the leading force in German government. And um, doesn't that sound familiar? And and uh, so Bonhoeffer moments. Uh, people will say to me, you know, this is not Germany. No. And in 1933, Germany wasn't Germany either. Yeah. Bonhoeffer saw uh, where these practices were going to take the church and the nation. Early on, he founded uh, uh, underground seminaries to train ministers because he felt that the church of his time was not training them properly to, to understand these issues. And, and so Bonhoeffer, and in the end, uh, as the Nazis are losing the war, and the allies are coming, Bonhoeffer is executed in 1945. Well, I like the way you kind of uh, summarize uh, saying that part of what the church should be doing is to audaciously acknowledge that the world needs what Christ has to offer. Yeah, uh, uh, yes, I think so. Well, as always, you give wisdom and insight and wonderful guidance, and I am very thankful uh, that you've uh, spent time with me tonight. Well, thank um, you, David. I'm honored that you asked me to chat with you about these issues. This is a time when we all have to talk about these kinds of dynamics in the faith that we claim. And I agree, and, uh, and which means that I hope we will do this again. Uh, as we continue this conversation. I'll look forward. Thank you, David. You are listening to Practicing Gospel. I'm David Rayburn. The music for this episode comes from a clip of a song called Father Let Your Kingdom Come that is on the Porter's Gate Worship Project Work Songs album and used by permission by the Porter's Gate Work Project. You can purchase the album and learn more about the Worship Project by going to the website, theportersgate.com. This show has as its purpose enabling you to hear the voices of the Christian left and about the issues and concerns that are of interest to the Christian left. 
Practicing Gospel Inc. is a nonprofit organization. If you like what you've heard, go to my website at practicing-gospel.blubrry.net to subscribe and hopefully to donate. Your participation will help me continue this effort. Thank you for listening and for your support. Blessings.